Welcome to the Going to 11 podcast. This is the first episode of a new experiment, but let me back up a bit. My name is Dave Stagel, and I'm a mix engineer currently based in the Atlanta area. For 15 years or so, I've been publishing articles about my journey in the world of audio engineering over on my website, goingto11.com. If you're listening to this, you might be familiar with the website, and if you're not, please head over and subscribe. You'll find out about new content from videos to podcasts to articles I write. It's all over there. After 15 years of writing, I've been looking for some different ways to create content because in some ways, I'm just tired of typing. Going to 11 started as my blog, and it was really kind of my audio journal for a long time. I mean, I still go back to the archive sometimes when I'm trying to remember how I did something. But I feel like over the last few years, it has kind of gotten away from that and into more educational kinds of things, probably because a large part of what I do these days when I'm not mixing is I head around the U.S. and help other audio engineers and houses of worship improve at their craft. I've been experimenting with video content creation, and now we're trying a podcast. And I say we because I'm here today with my good friend, Marco Garino. Marco is a musician and engineer here in Atlanta. He tours with the J.J. Weeks Band. Well, he did before the COVID-19 thing hit. And then he also does a bunch of audio production and gigs as a guitarist and drummer. And Marco and I, I just... I just loved chatting about audio and music with him, and he had some cool questions that he was sticking in my head and mentioned getting a podcast going. So I thought we'd just start this podcast experiment off with some conversations that can get maybe a little more educational at first, and in the future, maybe other folks will join me or join me and Marco. Maybe we'll do interviews. Maybe they'll just be animal sound effects. I have no idea. If you do enjoy this, I'd love to hear from you. And if you have ideas for topics or questions or people you think we should chat with, you know, let let us know over at my website, goingto11.com. So let's jump in. How's it going, Marco? It's going good, man. Glad to uh, be able to take some time and hang out with you here. Normally, for those who might not be in our direct circle, we we normally enjoy getting together and just having a burger and nerding out about PAs and microphones and all the kind of the nerdy audio things that are fun to talk about when you have someone who can appreciate the uh, the design behind all of those elements. You were asking me about bus compression or two bus compression, and I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of churches right now that have been moving their streams or their, their services, I should say, they're moving them online and getting more into streaming. And there's some stuff out there floating around that I hear about bus compression that kind of is not true. So I thought maybe we could bust some myths and talk a little about Myth it. Myth busting on bus compression with Dave Stagel. Right. <laughs> so two bus compression, and that's, I think, when when we talk about bus compression, I'm really going to be talking about two bus compression, meaning putting a compressor on our master left right, our mix output, whatever 
however you've got it configured in your DAW or on your digital console, basically over the left, right. I know there are some guys, you know, bus, bus compression in general, if we're talking about it, it could refer to having some subgroups on a console and compressing those. And some guys do that, but that's not really what we're going to talk about tonight. Those are That's kind of a subset. Yeah, we're looking more at master bus things. And I'm glad you said that. Yeah, not just for people in a, in a DAW like Pro Tools or Ableton, but also for your console for live, how you might be implementing those in a live scenario as well. Yeah, and bus compression, it's something I've used for a long time. It's a popular studio technique. I've heard lately some people say that quote unquote, everyone uses this technique, but that is absolutely not true. So if you're not using bus compression, don't you don't have to feel like you're missing out or it's not this Yeah, you're not left out of the group. Yeah, it's not this magic bullet that is all of a sudden going to fix everything. There are a lot of A-list studio mix engineers who do use it because that's really where the technique started. But not all of them do. For example, I know the late Mike Shipley, who is a great mix engineer, he didn't use bus compression much. Uh, and mm. also Andrew Sheps, he's been saying lately that he's not using bus compression anymore. Yep. You know, the other consideration too with bus compression, while you could get into it right now, as we're moving into immersive audio formats like um, Dolby Atmos in the studio, Eliza in live mm -hmm. sound, DMB soundscape, all of those kind of immersive formats, they're object-oriented, which changes the game a little bit. And then maybe that's a discussion for another time. But when you're in an object-oriented kind of mixing environment or mixing platform, there is no master bus anymore. Right. All of that stuff gets handled in a some kind of processor computer Later. But most of us these days are, the vast majority of people are still mixing just stereo or two channel. So, and especially, mm -hmm. especially for streaming and live use, that's still the predominant way everybody's mixing. So, right. bus compression. So where, where it started, the, the whole history of it is a little debatable. The technique really rose in popularity in the 1980s in large part to the rising popularity of SSL consoles or the mm -hmm. SSL 4000 series consoles to be specific. The glue. Yeah, because, well, in those desks, they had a built-in bus compressor. But right. it, it actually, the technique probably goes back a little earlier than that because why do you think SSL started putting a bus compressor in the console to begin with? Right. Some of the old Neve desks had like the, they had like a 2254 compressor on them. And that was way earlier than the SSL. I think it was probably like the early 70s. But the 80s was when this technique really kind of became popular and a lot of guys started doing it. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty simple technique. You put a compressor across your mix and you use and it. it's better. <laughs> well, maybe, not necessarily. The, the tricky part for most guys who do this is they mix into the compression. Right. So talk to some people about that. So we might be using a compressor like on a kick drum channel or on our lead vocal or something, but if we're mixing into compression, like how that affects what's going on in the mix. Once it once you know we've got everything in our mix, what we would say summing to our master bus, and then from there, when we insert a compressor 
in line before the output, then, you know, we have things that we have to look at, like where is the compression threshold at? And then, you know, if we're adding makeup gain to the back end, because I've seen some people go down that rabbit hole and, you know, you get your gain structure off because you're compressing, but you're also adding a lot of output volume, which kind of changes what you're doing with the compression on your mix bus. So let's maybe talk about that a little bit. The mixing into it to me is that's the trickiest part of it. And that's the, you know, when I think back to when I started using bus compression, because I really started using it about, I would say 10 to 12 years ago. And I got into it after I went to go see Hillsong United live Mm. and James Rudder was mixing. And I think he had an Allen Smart compressor on his mix bus. And I really liked the way he had everything sound in. So mm-hmm. I went back to my console at the time and I started playing around with bus compression. But the hardest part about getting started was mixing into it because you want to have it on at the start. Right. You don't want to put it on later on. The problem you run into when you start adding compression to a mix later in the process is it can affect the balance of your mix. Mm-hmm. So you spend yep. all this time getting everything dialed in and then you throw a compressor on and your whole mix is different and now you got to start over. Yep. And then you run into this thing where you're like chasing your tail around Mm -hmm. because you're mixing a little bit and then you look at the compressor and it's like, oh, that's doing more than I want it to. And then you adjust the compressor, which changes your mix. And then you readjust your mix. And then... Yeah, let's say, for example, that we're not in a analog modeling domain for people that might not be on a wave system, for example, and we're just, in principle, talking about a console compressor. So if we just had the channel strip compressor on a console, like a Yamaha or maybe an M32, would that give us the effect that we're wanting, or do we want to be on some kind of a analog modeled compressor for the character that it adds? For me, it's not necessarily about the character of it. I mean, that's that's probably part of it. I think the compressor you use on your master bus, you want to use a really good compressor because everything is going through it. And on some consoles, the compressors that are built into them, at least on the channels, they're... They're usable, you know, maybe not awesome, but but right. they're usable. I I usually say, you know, if you're if you're trying this out for the first time, I always recommend using something that is an SSL style compressor because there's other there's all kinds of different versions of them. Some some live digital consoles probably have that style of compressor in the console maybe in a premium rack somewhere. Right. Waves has their SSL compressor. Plugin Alliance makes a ver- you know there, there's so many different plugin versions mm-hmm. of it out there. They're not all compatible for live use, but at a minimum right. you could use the Waves one. I started with the Waves bus compressor when I started doing this. And cuz the SSL, the SSL to me is really what started the whole thing off. An alternative to using an SSL style I would maybe use a VCA style compressor because most of the most of the popular 
bus compressors are VCA style. The API 2500 right. is VCA. Yeah, that's what I was going to go for is the API 2500. There's some other ones I can't think of off the top of my head. The Another option though, and I think, I think Yamaha consoles might have a version of this in their premium rack, and that would be a Neve 33609, mm-hmm. which is another popular bus compressor. It's it's not a VCA compressor, but it's it's technically it's a diode bridge. Well, I mean, if they're plugins, they're really <laughs> they're not really that anyway. <laughs> it's a numbers compressor. Yeah, we're it's they're all they're all just moving numbers around and doing math. But that diode bridge is similar to me. It's similar to what a VCA style compressor would would do. Right. So for for people listening to this, and they're probably hearing all these different terms and kind of styles of compressors, and we want to do another discussion in the future about more in detail on those compressors. But I I would kind of say, let's take a step backwards. What would you say is kind of the big difference between having a built-in channel strip compressor on your main bus and let's say they're at the same settings versus what having like the SSL compressor or an API 2500, um, because those are probably the two most commonly available compressor models that people are modeling outside of waves as far as what's on a Yamaha console or what's on a Midas or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's See, this, and this is a hard thing, at least for me to talk about, because it's usually, it's, it's a feel thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of used to what, how does it make, how does it make the whole mix feel when I put right. it on? So the SSL has, has this glueiness to it, which is probably somewhat tied to where the attack and release settings are. It can. And- when you're getting into different compressors and different compressor topologies and the way they work, it's, you know, the, yeah, the, con- the controls we can adjust, they have an effect, but there's stuff internally Right. That control the the actual envelope of the way they work that mm-hmm. we don't have a say in. I mean, that's why opto compressors right. sound different from FET compressors from VCAs and that, but that's a discussion for another right. another day. I usually just say start with the SSL because that's like the poster child for it. You could try it with right. with something else on your on your console, just like the console compressor, but I get nervous about recommending people do that because if you're on a cheap digital console and the compressors right. in there aren't necessarily good to begin with, yep. you might not get the advantages of using mm-hmm. it. And then you you're you know you're gonna try to you're gonna try to master a technique with something that wasn't meant to be used for right. that technique. So in the in the ways that you're using this, let's go back to the SSL. Yeah. What what would you say kind of is the the ratio and maybe an approximation of a threshold, or maybe not so much the threshold, but how many dBs compression when the band's full tilt and kick in? What whether this is live or on a on a DAW, you know, how much compression are you seeking to get and what kind of because obviously for people that know a little bit about compression sonically like a one to one and a half or one to two versus a one to eight is going to be a drastically different sound and compression so you know where where would you kind of see yourself setting some of those settings on an ssl compressor for example well here here, I'll, i'll say this first because there's there's two parts to this the kind of the sort of magic setting quote unquote that isn't, it's not magic. It's just the popular setting 
on an SSL mm-hmm. compressor is what a lot of people call 410 auto, which is mm-hmm. a four to one ratio, a 10 millisecond attack, and auto release. That's yep. not, not everybody does that. Bob Clear Mountain, for example, uses a one millisecond attack and a 300 millisecond release. I know wow. there are some He's guys. A lot faster. Yeah, there's some guys. Well, it's faster on the attack, but the release sometimes can get slower. Oh, yeah, if it's and full auto, yeah. And actually, the auto the auto release on the SSL styles to me is usually pretty slow mm-hmm. when you get everything going. If you go too fast, it can start to get pumpy, mm-hmm. which is which again is a different sound. It's a different sound, but that's one of those things that when you're mixing into it, you're gonna push things a certain way. So. What I would say, starting out with it, you know, what I did was I started out a mix. I just, I didn't have it turned on at all because how do you set the threshold on the thing if you don't, if you don't know where it needs to be to begin with? Right. If your gain staging on your console is right, you're probably going to be able to set it around zero, zero VU, plus or minus a few dB. That's, in Mm -hmm. theory, that's going to get you in the right spot, but... If you're doing this live like I was, and who knows what your gain staging is with your PA and all of that kind of thing, you might need to get the threshold set in a different place. So what I would recommend someone do is take your compressor or get a drum mix dialed in. Just get the drums where you like them to begin with and get them at the approximate level in the house if you're doing this live Mm -hmm. or in the studio. Get them at the level that you would have them at on that mix. Now turn on the compressor, set the ratio to four to one or two to one. A lot of guys, see a lot of guys, they like using really low ratios on their master bus. But for this, I would say initially set the ratio high, probably four to one, maybe I think 10 to one is the next one. It's eight to one or 10 to one. I don't have one in front of me, so I can't remember what the the options are in SSL, but go higher and crank the threshold down so that it's just whacking the snot out of your right. drums and messing it up. Now adjust the attack to where you like it because mm. some some guys like like that one millisecond attack is going to take off more of your transient. If right. you're already taking that off on an input, you might not like that there. It might mm-hmm. it might neuter things too much. Right. You know, or go to the 10 millisecond one. So the effect that we're kind of going for is within reason kind of a smoothing effect here, not so much a pumping or a chopping kind of a compression. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, right now I would just be looking for how much of my, because the, you know, the thing with the bus compression, why I started using it, there were like three reasons. The first one was I felt like it gave my mix a sense of glue. You know, what, what does that mean? To me, it just, it, it felt like a record. My board mixes mm-hmm. sound, started to sound like records. And at the time, the musicians I was working with, they used to listen to those board mixes and they would get mm-hmm. fired up about what they were hearing. So that was a, a big win. If I could have a board mix that sounded like a record and still good in the room, obviously, right? that was kind of what I was always going for anyways. I was always trying to get, you know, how can I make things sound more like a record? And now for people who are streaming, that's usually what people want their streams to sound a little bit more like. You don't want them to sound really live and kind of... Yeah, you can't get away with 18 dB of dynamic range on a phone. Well, definitely <laughs> not. But 
that's not at the same time I don't use bus compression to it's not really there necessarily to tame all the dynamic range you've got to, I think you've got to do that on your inputs and that's just right that's just mixing so that, that goes back to an earlier question that I had so if you're you know when we're let's say we've got our drums or even the full band full tilt and we're kind of you know bypass toggling this compressor to hear what it's doing to our mix what kind of compression you know is what what the threshold is doing are we looking for like a two to four db compression thing maybe are we looking for maybe something more than that yeah well we're getting we're getting there we're getting there okay that's that's next so get your drums going the way you like them because that was the other thing about bus compression why i started really using it was because it made my drums sound better Right. So, you know, it also made my mixes come together faster, and I found I wasn't using as much compression on individual inputs. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, really, it made my drums sound better. So, <laughs> at the end of the day, that's what we're all here for. I- exactly. But yeah, no, nobody else is, <laughs> but I right. am. So, get your attack on the compressor where you like it, and then usually, I like the release. I usually use it in auto when I'm on an SSL. I actually live, I use the Waves API 2500 these days. Mm-hmm. And that release I usually have set probably, it's somewhere in the 200 to 300 region. So okay. you can just kind of set it in there. In, in a studio setting, you might want to automate this because one of the things you can do is you can use this bus compressor as a rhythmic component, which is a whole other thing. Live, I never do that. I don't. Right. I honestly, I don't even really do that in the studio because I usually just set it in auto. I use um, an SSL style bus compressor in my studio when I'm mixing, and it's on 410 auto. And I, I think I tried. Right. I tried going to one millisecond 300, the the Bob Clear Mountain setting because I'm a big fan of Bob, mm-hmm. as most people who know me know. <laughs> but I didn't. It didn't work for me just because of the way I was hitting everything else in there. I. I could hear it pumping too much and right. I didn't like it. So I went to back to 410 auto. So get your attack the way you like it. Set a re- pick a release setting. Now adjust that threshold so that you're just with with the drums going, mm-hmm. you're just kissing the needle. So we're talking like 2 to 3 dB maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe if that. Might even just go one because the thing that's going to happen is as you add things into the mix, you're right. going to get more gain reduction out of it. Yep. And where I'm going overall usually is two to three kind of okay. overall. On the, on the Waves API, I feel like that's a much more aggressive compressor as a bus compressor. So with that one, I feel like I can hear it working a little more. So right. I don't even, a lot of times I don't even look at, at it because I don't, I don't trust the meter on it. So that meter, when I'm using that, it's probably barely touching it. I think that goes for a lot of compressors, regardless of who made them, is to use your ears. Look at the meter as a starting point and use your ears. If you can hear it, then it's really doing something. And if you can't hear it, it might not actually be compressing anything, yeah. even if the meter says it's doing 1 or 2 dB. Well, and that's that's one of the things that can be hard about trying to use this to begin with, because when you start dialing it down so mm-hmm. that it's only doing... 1 or 2 dB of gain reduction, you might not hear it as much. You should be able to pop it in and out and hear your drums change. If that's all that's on there, you should be able to do that. I would set I would set a makeup gain for maybe 3 dB 
to begin with because that's about what you're going to be doing. But you, honestly, you don't even have to set any makeup gain at first. Right. Just That's kind of not the point. Yeah, just tap it a little bit and... And do it. I think in the studio, I do maybe a dB and a half of makeup gain, but I'm probably hitting mm-hmm. the compressor harder. So, right. you know, it's not as big of a deal. But get it just happen and then mix. Don't right. touch it. When you get everything up and going, you can go back and maybe adjust it. Like, I don't want to do more than three to four, usually. At least for the, the kind of... You know, most of the music I'm doing and and you're doing is more modern worship kind of stuff. For that, I don't right. want to hit it really hard. If I was doing something that was like heavy rock, that's a different story. It's a little different animal. But for the kind of live modern worship stuff that, that I'm doing, maybe three to four dB of gain reduction overall, a lot of times I only want to hit about two and a half. I I don't like hitting it really hard. Mm-hmm. The other side of this, though, is if your mix balance, like if you can't get a good mix balance together to begin with, I don't know how much this is going to help. I know a lot of the the online mixes that I listen to these days, just the the overall balances a lot of times can use some work. I like loud vocals, but some of them, they're like even too loud for my taste. And the right. you know, and the drums are really, they're like really way in the back. People who've come to some of my mixing workshops that I do, they know a lot of times I will play a Celine Dion track in there. Mm-hmm. So go pull up on Spotify or YouTube, go pull up the Power of Love and fast forward about halfway in. And if the drums in your mixes aren't as loud as they are in the Celine Dion track, <laughs> you can turn your drums up. Yep, it's I mean, okay that's, to hear the kick drum. Yeah, and the snare drum. The the problem... Drums is not hi-hats. No, loud loud drums... I mean, if, if, if the overall everything in your room is too loud, yeah, that's going to be a problem. But drums have been loud in popular music going back to at least the mm-hmm. 60s. Right. I sort of think as Motown stuff as being when they really started becoming prominent in mixes, but you go through the Motown stuff in the 60s, and then you get into the 70s with with 70s rock and Zeppelin, you know, and the snare drum, and then in the 80s, it was, you know, mm-hmm. some of those guys will talk about, they they were almost having contests to see who could have the loudest snare drum yep. in a mix, and if you think about, think about all those teenagers back in the 80s, teen- <laughs> The teenagers from the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, how old are they now in 2020? Wow. Everybody is used to having loud drums. That's not the issue. Cymbals, people don't like cymbals because cymbals get brittle and harsh, and they wipe out every instrument on the stage. (laughs) Cymbals eat guitars and vocals and everything. They, they don't like your drums if your drums sound bad to you. You've got to get your kit set up and you got to change your heads and, yep. you know, have... have That's on good... our next podcast. Yeah, there we go. Get, <laughs> get your instruments sounding good to begin with. But having your drums loud in the mix, everybody's used to that. And you put on, put on radio today, listen to adult contemporary stuff or listen to modern rock or whatever. The drums are, you know, that, that backbeat 
is is a major component in just about mm-hmm. every every type of popular music. There is something, whether it's a snare drum or claps or some electronic thing, there is always something prominent on the backbeat. So don't be afraid of having drums as loud or just about as loud as your vocal because that's what people are used to yeah, in music. Yeah, the energy. Well, definitely. Now there's there is there is a taste element in there. It's not there's no rule on this. I mean, yeah, you can pull your drums back if you want. <laughs> Usually when I start pulling the drums back because I start feeling like, "Ah, oh, I, mm-hmm. I think I'm getting a little too much on the drums lately." Everybody goes, "Hey, can you turn the drums up?" I go, "Okay." Yeah. So, set your bus compressor around the drums because the drums are going to have probably the the strongest transient energy which is going to peak above your average level of everything. And the drums are going to drive that compressor a lot, which is kind of what I think you want. I mean, I think that's part of why mm-hmm. part of why it glues everything together is because you're giving a uniform type of dynamic to every instrument. So it just makes everybody feel like they're playing together. Right. Which I like. It's a good sound. It probably would help a bunch of other people out there. But but again, you know, not everybody uses bus compression. You don't have to do it. I've used it on just about every mix I've done when I can. I mean, there there are some consoles when I get on the lower end kind of budget consoles if I'm doing a gig there or if I'm at a church training somewhere, mm-hmm. I don't use it. It's not something I absolutely have to have. But when I can, I use it, and it's been on just about everything. There was a little season somewhere, maybe six or seven years ago, where I stopped using it for about five <laughs> or six months. I think I was hanging out with a, a buddy of mine who was mixing front of house at the time, out on tour, and I was sitting there listening to it, and I was like, oh, I like how everything was, it had this kind of openness, right. and just sort of, it felt live, I guess. And sometimes that's cool and some people like that. And if that's what you like, that's great. Online, that doesn't necessarily translate all the time. So mm-hmm. I like using the bus compressor. Yeah, that's definitely a great smoothing tool to have in your arsenal when you're trying to glue everything together. I think that's something that people should take away from this is what you said earlier. We're not trying to use this per se to bring all of our dynamics way in for a live stream mix per se. You might use a limiter or something else for that or just mixing more. I think it's just mixing. You know, the big thing with dynamics, and dynamics is a topic for another day, but dynamics, like really hearing them, it's not something that most people naturally pick up on. Mm-hmm. Part of it is we're just so used to, you know, for example, a vocal. We're so used to listening to, like, talking to each other just in person without any electronics. And our mm-hmm. speech is naturally really dynamic as singing is. So you don't necessarily go, oh, that needs compression. Where compression stands out to me is when you start putting things with other instruments. And now mm-hmm. I want everything kind of playing the same dynamics so that it sits together. But a lot of people, you know, they, they're not riding faders in the mix. They're not actively mixing. You know, mm. mixing is not a set everything and forget it kind of sport. Yeah. You have to... Well, that stays on what you are saying earlier about mixing into the compressor instead of letting it do the work. Yeah. See, in mixing into it, that's another way it helps because if you think about it, if I'm pushing into it, for example, let's say the guitar solo comes up and I push that up. 
Well, if I push something into that compressor, that compressor is going to attenuate more. Mm -hmm. And as I'm pushing one thing up and it's attenuating, it's going to turn everything else down while keeping that thing you're pushing up kind of from getting too loud. Like it's going to stop that Mm -hmm. from getting too loud while at the same time, it's turning down all of these other things. So it also helps you refocus the mix that way because by pushing something into it, you're going to change the whole balance. This is why putting a compressor on at the end throws balances off Mm -hmm. because depending on how things were set in the balance, that louder thing a lot of times is going to become the more present, the more forward thing in the mix, and it's going to knock all that other stuff out of balance. But if you have it on from the start, you'll make your decisions based on what that compressor is doing to the whole mix. I think that's why a lot of guys started using this in the first place back in the studio was because they would hear their mixes on the radio. And radios have been using compressors and limiters for decades because they had to stop their broadcasts from Mm overmodulating. So they would use compressors and they would use them to make everything the same loudness, Mm -hmm. which is a whole other thing to to talk about with the whole (laughs) loudness wars and how irrelevant they really were in a lot of cases right from the start. But I think a lot of guys, they got used to, or, or they didn't like what that compressor at the radio was doing to their mixes. So someone started mixing into them in the studio when went, hey, <laughs> now my mix that I'm giving to my band to listen to, the band likes it more because it sounds more like what stuff on the radio sounds like. Right. So suddenly the client is happier. Mm-hmm. And the other side of it was having that compression on it actually helped mitigate the effects of adding more compression later on downstream with the radio. So Mm -hmm. things didn't change as much as they went into the radio. I think Andy Wallace, I've heard him talk about that and why he was using bus compression back in the 80s. Some cool tidbits of information to have. Yeah, and nowadays when you, you know, if you think about, okay, streaming, to me, anything going online right now is still kind of the Wild West in terms of codecs that are being used and data rates and what's it actually going to sound like. So... right having that compression on to begin with could help with your translation later on. I mean, yeah, the codec you go into that's being used this week, it'll it'll be different in two months. But what's <laughs> getting used this week, that might be totally messing things up, but it might right. not mess it up as bad. You know, a lot right. of that stuff you have to kind of you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt a little bit that when it leaves your room, it's not going to sound as good as it did in your room. I wish it did. We all wish it did. Well, Dave, this has been a lot of fun getting to talk about some compression things with you. I think that this will be a a start, hopefully, of some more to come for people that have listened all the way through this. Hopefully, we'll get to start opening up kind of discussion with people to some more topics and getting uh, some feedback from listeners to uh, hear what they'd like to hear us kind of talk about. Yeah, and if if you did listen through this whole thing and you enjoyed it, you know, let us know. You can reach me at my website, which is goingto11.com, going to the number 11.com, or I'm on social media as FOH Dave on Twitter and Facebook, FOH Dave1 
on Instagram, and that's a that's a long story. Maybe we'll, we'll tell that. We'll tell. Yeah, it's not. It's not that. Three. It's not that long of a story, but it is a story <laughs> out there. And if I can help you, you know, I do a lot of training with churches and other engineers. And if that's something I can help you with or help you with mixing, you know, definitely reach out. Marco, how can people get a hold of you if they want to say Yeah, what? one of the, the best ways to kind of keep up with me is Instagram, uh, mgproatl on Instagram. And that's also my website, which is in my Instagram bio. And uh, I don't have the years of experience that Dave does, but I do a few of the same things with uh, just kind of educating and teaching people about audio and and live mixing and helping train and equip volunteers to take their audio to the next level which i think for a lot of us guys even though i'm i'm a younger guy in the industry um when you start hanging out with people like dave and you know a a bunch of other people we're not going to sit here and name drop anyone but when you start start hanging out with some of these guys like the the real heart behind i would say most of these audio engineers is that they want to be able to to teach and educate people about all the cool stuff that they've gotten to learn and experience and observe. And you know, it's, it's shaped what they're doing as an audio engineer, but that's not something that's just knowledge they want to keep, you know, to themselves. They want to be able to impart that knowledge and, and teach and train other people about it. So definitely a good, uh, a good resource to have here, Dave. Yeah. And I think we're going to, well, I don't know what this podcast is going to... I mean, this might be the only episode. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I, I think we're going to try and do some of that in future episodes and maybe get some other guys in here that we can just kind of talk shop about some stuff on. But if you've got ideas, if there's topics you'd like us to get into, let us know. If there's things that you, you really don't want us to ever talk about, you know, like lighting, don't worry, you don't need to... Tell us that. They get a YouTube channel by themselves. Yeah, we're not going to talk about <laughs> we're not going to talk about lighting or video, even though I was a film major once upon a time. But <laughs> we're not we're not going there. <laughs> they can have their own show. <laughs> That's another YouTube channel. Yeah, it's another YouTube channel. That's another podcast. I I love I love those guys to death because I work with them, but they can get their own show. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. Go to goingto11.com and you can subscribe for updates. You'll find out when the next, well, if we do another one of these, when's it coming out? And I also post a lot of articles up there on audio stuff. So head over there. You can keep track of everything that's going on. But thanks for listening. Going to 11 with Dave Stagel. (laughs) There it is. That's the theme. You just did it. Pretty cheesy. It's kind of great, though. <laughs> just MIDI that up. We just yeah. throw that into Melodyne and run it through a vocal synth like Ovox. And um, <laughs> that'll vo- we'll vocode it and make it all Daft Punky. And right. that'll be I was going to say, I can do a little kick bass and Daft Punk thing. <laughs> there you go. We'll just base it around an, a major 11 chord. <laughs> <laughs>